I had a baby brother! I had a little baby brother! And he was perfect! Perfect in every way! to the Mad Max Minute, where we watch rubber babies get bumped in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 68, which begins with the bullet farmer from the bullet farm speeding away, and it ends with Max and the wives trying to get the war rig out of the mud. Again. Joining us once again are two viable humans, A1 Alpha Primes even. It's Jonathan Carlisle and David Johnson from the UHF 62nd Podcast. Hello. Hello. I'm viable human. I'll have to tell my wife that. Welcome back. <laughs> we should get you certificates. A1, Alpha Prime, viable. Perfect in every way. Perfect in every way. <laughs> Aw. <laughs> so the Peacemaker is gone. The Peacemaker is piecing out so that it can go on its little hunting trip. And we leave Joe and the organic mechanic behind. And as Joe peers into Giga Horse, the organic mechanic is just digging into Ang Herod, just Going full on cesarean section, old world slash apocalyptic style. No other kind. Yes, yes, he is. So glad they didn't show us that. Yeah, he is very strategically positioned between us and the open stomach. Uh, Which brings me to a question just about the movie in general. Yeah. It is rated R. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say it's not, I guess, shouldn't be rated R, but I will say that they seem to have done. Either they went out of their way or they just did a good job of making this not the hardest R that they could have made. Yeah, they don't go overboard with it just because it's allowed. Right. One of the deleted scenes has an exposed breast. Trying to think if there's any other explicit nudity. Oh. Like, honestly... No, the wives are pretty so. skimpy dressed, but but they're covered. Yeah, I mean, there's nipples all over the place. Well, it's cold <laughs> all over the place, but they're covered except for the people eater, except for the people eater. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> honestly, the movie would get an R rating just from that one character alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying it doesn't deserve it, but but it is interesting. I think this is a movie you could watch and then come to the end of the movie and then you'd have to go. Oh, was this rated PG-13 or R? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I could see that. It's not something that you're like, whoa, definitely don't uh, show this, you know. Yeah, they could, in theory, have trimmed out maybe one or two things and gone back to a PG-13. Because one of the things that when we were talking to Mark Sexton about, there was the idea of making this a lower rated movie for a broader appeal by just changing a few things. And I think what really tips it over for... The R rating is the amount of blood that they add to this movie. The blood splatter and things. I'm thinking about instances of blood, and they're not overwhelming. No, they're oftentimes subtle, but they're there. Like when people are getting hit by bullets, those little digital squibs are spraying everywhere and stuff. In this scene, though, I have to say I, I really appreciate George Miller's decision-making You know, to purposefully not show much gore at all yeah because that's one of the main thrusts or themes of this movie is that you can't own people and and these um you know the the wives are more than possessions and you know 
I just feel like to have shown a splendid cut open like that or to, you know, really kind of go for the gore in this moment would have started to dehumanize her again or the wives in general. And uh, it would have been counter, I think, to some of the thematic elements of the film. So even though it's a good time for some blood splatter or some gore, some gross out, there's a lot of restraint on Miller's part in this scene, and I appreciate that quite a bit. Mm, absolutely. And the way they're treating Ang Herod in the shots that we can see her, she's laid back, her eyes are covered, she almost looks like she's sleeping. And it's not like they've tossed her over or something. Like, they've actually made a little bed for her. They're treating her body with a lot of respect. I like to think that that was Miss Giddy's doing. I think mostly because I'm projecting on her. I want her to stand up for Ang Herod. So I would like to think that the way that they are treating her is due to her voice. Oh, I just thought of something with that. She over her face, you know, like Furiosa and some of the war boys and stuff, they have the black painted on their forehead. Mm. I wonder if this is mm. like a purity thing with the wives that they've, she's got white on mm. her forehead. Interesting comparison. I really like that. Yeah, it's like a reversal. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I definitely can see Miss Giddy insisting on laying Ang Herod out like this because the only person, in quotation marks, that Joe is concerned about is the baby inside Ang Herod. And as the organic mechanic gets cutting, first of all, we get some pretty graphic close-ups of his face. And I say graphic because he's got this big blob of spit oh, right ew. in the middle of his mouth. And I'm like, just wipe your mouth. Right? I don't really understand. I I, uh, I, I did a previous project, uh, the Princess Bride Minute, and I, I as I kept watching this minute over and over, he kind of reminded me a bit of the albino. Mm. Uh, not so much the slobber, but like the just the tongue hanging out as he's like working on somebody and he's just like really going to town. I definitely see that. But yeah, he's gross. I think the albino has a little bit more charm than the organic mechanic, though. A little bit better bedside manner, maybe? I don't know. Jonathan, you're the expert on it. <laughs> I Yeah, I think so. I mean, he is, you know, when we see him in the movie, he is cleaning somebody up just to get tortured and killed anyway. But, um, you know, it's, it's got he's doing his job. He's got a job to do. <laughs> I wouldn't say the organic mechanic is without charm. It's just charm that is not aimed at us mm. it's charm that is aimed at joe and rictus particularly rictus the way he talks to rictus it's very direct he is physically going around joe to talk to rictus mm. which is an unusual move yeah you know what the organic mechanic he strikes me as the kind of person that is very sure of himself, and so he's cool in that way. He doesn't try to be cool for someone else. I feel like with the albino and the princess bride, he was always trying to impress somebody, and he didn't seem to have that natural coolness about him that the organic mechanic does, even if he is a scrappy, drooling <laughs> butcher. Yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic. You know, we talked a little bit about it last minute where he's calling Immortan's wife girly and then he, you know, hey, Rictus, he's the familiarity that he allows himself is is pretty astounding to me. I just I wonder, you know, how how did he get to that point testing the waters? How did he know where his limitations were of how familiar he couldn't be with Immortan and his family? You know, I wonder if there was a I'd love to see, you know, another comic book, maybe uh, somewhere where, you know, where he found out where that line was, where he couldn't get more familiar with them than that. And, you know, 
if he uh, somehow got a punished or, uh, you know, got his toes stepped on a little bit for being a little too flippant, perhaps. Yeah, I was wondering myself if he's ever been punished. Speaking of the comic books, the organic mechanic is the one who ensures that Joe is able to perform when he visits the wives. Hmm. And so he often sees Joe in a very different light. And I feel like seeing someone in that light, and I'm being incredibly euphemistic for the sake of our listeners, (laughs) to prevent you from having the same visual image in your head that I have right now. It's too late. We all know what you're talking about. Yeah. But once you see a person in that situation, it's hard to see them as big, scary God King. (laughs) Because all you do is see them as the kind of guy who just needs help in that department. And the organic mechanic might be the only person who knows that Joe needs help. Yeah. It's quite possible that even Rictus, his second in command, doesn't know. Oh, I really hope that Joe or the organic mechanic is not sharing with Immortan <laughs> Joe's son the different ways that the organic mechanic helps Joe sire children. That's not something a son needs I... to know about his father. <laughs> I imagine that Morton Joe is keeping any information from Rictus as how any of that works so that he can stay away. Rictus is kept on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> I am starting to become very curious. Is it? Are we saying that uh, uh, the organic is giving um, Morton like, pharmacological help? Yes. Uh, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. I wasn't sure exactly <laughs> the... I don't know. Just, just checking. <laughs> <laughs> so, the organic mechanic... We get this close-up of him. One detail that I really appreciate, his stethoscope has bullet casings as part of it. I'm looking specifically at second seven. He's got the two metal parts that go into his ears, and then as they come down into the center loop, there are like bullet casings that go into the actual lines that come around to the little listening cup at the end there. So it's a nice bit of post-apocalyptic chic there. I was wondering about the stethoscope, actually, on Monday's Minute, and I didn't bring it up. He has the stethoscope around his neck, but when he needs to check Angharad's belly to see if the baby is still alive, he grabs a completely different device. Well, yeah. The stethoscope is for listening to breathing. If you want to check on a baby, (laughs) you need uh, an ultrasound thing, and the horn is a thing that makes sound and helps amplify sound. It's something that could be described as ultra in that it does both. And so that is his ultra sound machine. (laughs) Okay. I think Rick is uh, ultra reaching. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I kind of see, you know, given that, I kind of see the stethoscope as just like a, I don't know that anybody knows what it does. Perhaps, you know, it's kind of like the uh, Nokia uh, circuit board that's on the Immortans breastplate or whatnot you know i wonder if he just has the stethoscope more as a symbol he doesn't know how it works or maybe the drum part of the stethoscope is broken or missing or something he knows it's like a doctorly type of a thing so it's more of like a rank insignia than an actual tool he remembers before the fall that doctors always had a stethoscope so if you're going to be any sort of doctor you got to have a stethoscope exactly i want to know what their name for the stethoscope is it's got to be something cool or something completely misguided I definitely can't see any post-apocalyptic survivor saying the word stethoscope, though. No. They would definitely have a weird phrase for it. I would think they would call it the sonic something. Yeah. Something sonic. I'm thinking a lot back to Thunderdome, where the waiting ones had the radio stuff, and they 
did their best to interpret what it was supposed to do or how it was supposed to be worn. And their ideas were misguided, but you could kind of see where they were coming from with that. So I'm kind of thinking along the same lines there. Hmm. So the organic mechanic, he pulls this baby out of Ang Herod, and we don't see much of it. We see its feet. We see its leg. I'm pretty sure this is the same rubber baby prop that they had in that deleted scene back when the elevator was going up and there was that one lady that was like, take my baby. And then they're like, no, we don't want your baby. And she's like, "Okay, fine, take me because I can make milk. Yeah. And they tossed the rubber baby back into the crowd and she handed it off to this random person then got on the elevator. I think this is the same prop. They recycled it. But I'm also glad that we don't see much of it because the way that the organic mechanic treats this rubber baby. Yeah, I don't like it. It's not careful. No. <laughs> nope, not at all. You, you, there's a lot of thudding going on. Yeah. The Foley work I, in this minute is a bit distressing when you really think about it. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to see the organic mechanic in a actual, like, healthy birth. Or as healthy birth as they get in these days. But, mm. yeah, because this is, this is pretty disturbing. Because he, 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 I mean, he very quickly decides that the baby is dead. Very quickly. Which, given the fall that Ang Herod took... If that baby did survive, I would have been very impressed. Sure. But as he says, cry in shame, another month could have been your viable human. So I guess Ang Herod was only eight months along. No, 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 no. Okay. Now, I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. (laughs) (laughs) But what I do know is that there is a point and I don't know what it is. And I'm sure I could Google it really quick. But I'm also sure that our listeners will know that there is a weak number where that pregnancy is now viable versus not viable. That if the baby was born any time after this time, that that baby could survive. But if it happens before then, then the baby just isn't grown enough. My understanding is that she was past that point. She was huge. And that baby, those feet are huge. That baby is ginormous. That is a full grown baby. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, this whole another month thing, I don't buy it. You think it's a misdirect on the, uh, the mechanic's part to pass any blame or deflect any blame that might be coming his way that he didn't know enough to keep the baby alive? Or that he did something when he was cutting and hair it open? Yeah. Yes, I totally buy that, that he is covering his own butt. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Are you saying <laughs> that like an oversized kitchen knife is not the best tool to be using to perform a C-section? Right. <laughs> oh, I wonder if Miss Giddy, I mean, obviously the organic mechanic is probably the expert in his field, but I wonder if Miss Giddy knows enough to squeal on him or, or if she would even have the guts to squeal on him if there was something to squeal about. I'm looking at second 19 of this minute, which shows Miss Giddy in somewhat of a close up. And she looks utterly horrified at how the organic mechanic is handling this baby and I think she's literally speechless because she can't believe what she's looking at. I always pictured her in a midwife role to the pregnant women during the birthing process. So I think she knows generally what is supposed to happen and how things are supposed to look. I doubt she's ever seen a C-section before, but I think what she is witnessing is so far off the mark. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of thinking that there is physical damage to the baby that she is seeing. That Joe is not seeing. Either which way, even if it was just dead of no fault of his, you just slapping this baby around. Like, I would I would imagine that Immortan Joe would still be like, hey, whoa, like, you know, it's been two seconds and you're just slapping the baby around already. Like, let's, yeah, let's, that, that's my my baby. 
Let's yeah, see what's happening. Joe seems to have some sort of affection on some level for his own offspring. I mean, Rictus and Corpus are in positions of authority, so and they're, you know, not the perfect heirs that he wants, but he keeps them around and they work for him and with him. So even if this child isn't going to be his perfect heir, it's still his child. Yeah. He seems to feel something for that, as opposed to his wives, who serve no purpose at all. And there's the added element that the child was male. Like, if the baby had come out a female, I'm sure he would have dismissed that out of hand. But the fact that it was a male, A1 Alpha Prime, like, that just made it even more upsetting to Joe. I used an upward inflection because I look at Joe and it's like, I don't want him to be sympathetic. He's a bad guy. But he's well, in a situation where he has just witnessed one of his potential children being delivered dead. Well, I think I don't have any sympathy for him because he doesn't react like a father should. No. He is moved. We get some close-up shots. We can see his eyes. He is moved. He's angry. He's upset. But the way he, the way that the child is treated with such disregard and just literally, like, dumped on the floor and nobody was like scooping up the child and like caring about it at all. Joe is part of that and he's doing nothing. And so I have no sympathy for him. And in fact, there is a deleted scene showing the discarding of this child. Mm. And I'm so glad they didn't include it. It does not need to be there. It's incredibly disturbing, but I don't know. I'm surprised at Joe and I have no sympathy for him. I would have thought he would have more respect for his own male child I, I did find myself you know feeling bad for rictus in this after you know once he's starts yelling to everybody like oh he he loved his little brother yeah even though his little brother died he still feels a connection to him he is still his brother yeah i feel like if nothing else like this is maybe you know even if they never talk about it again like this is his moment to kind of uh give memory or something you know there's some kind of moment for him yeah i really like rictus's reaction and his exclamation letting all of the war parties know that he had a baby brother a little baby brother and he was perfect perfect in every way it's a little sad but what i really like about this shot is you've got rictus and he's shouting to everybody and then from the bottom of the frame joe rises into view and he's just got this look of like i am gonna burn this place to the ground <laughs> and it is just a great immortan joe moment because he's not the center frame right now. He's not the focus, but he is going to insert himself into the focus. <laughs> like, don't forget about me. <laughs> yeah, Rictus me. is having this moment of glory. He is bragging to everybody. And Joe's like, nope. Yeah. And I like how the I'm war boys around them are like revving their engines in recognition. Yeah. It's a moment to celebrate. It is. It is. I don't think Rickness means it this way, but it's a little bit of a power play, too, because it, it is just telling everybody, hey, like Immortan Joe, like this whole thing worked like he can help create, you know, the next generation. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, I know earlier on in the podcast, Julia, you had, uh, you guys had talked about uh, how simple uh, Rictus was or how childlike he was. What's your reading on this? Does this push you closer to, you know, thinking that Rictus is kind of like, uh, I can't remember the phrase that you guys were using. Um, it wasn't simple. What were you calling, saying you? I'm definitely leaning away from any sort of 
implication that he's simple. I'm definitely leaning more towards he's just childlike. Like he's intellectually somewhere around 11 or 12 years old. Yeah, I think mm. childlike is a good descriptor. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, it, the necklace that he has is like little baby plastic baby heads, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, is he just like, does he just want siblings to play with? Or I mean, why is he so fixated on the siblings thing? I wonder if there's something more than just like, as as Jonathan said, this is part of a Morton's plan. And this is, you know, bringing us into the future, taking us into the future. Or if, you know, I, I wonder why he's he is so tuned into having a sibling well we've talked before we know from the comics that the baby heads came from a stash that he discovered in a house yeah like an obsessive collector and he found that collection and incorporated it into things okay so finding the collection explains where they came from but why he uses them as decoration, I think, has been a bit unexplained. Hmm. Like It could be simply he found a stash, he uses them, they kind of became his thing. But I think he is invested in this idea of babies. And maybe it's because it's so important to Joe that Rigdus has kind of picked that up as an interest. Like, yes, we got to have babies, they have to be perfect, uh, they got to be boys. Hmm. So this necklace is kind of like his personal like rain dance, like baby rain dance to like wear this necklace all the time. I wonder if he thinks it's like a fertility charm or something like this. I also feel like it could be a caricature of like an old world story of a warlord. Like you see Hindu imagery of their goddess of war and death and she's wearing this necklace of skulls. And I can imagine Rictus being told stories as a young man of these figures of death adorned with heads and things like that. And he's like, oh, well, that sounds awesome. I want to co-opt that imagery <laughs> into my personal style, which could be why he wears these things. The necklace of doll heads and the flattened out rubber baby heads that he's incorporated into his knee pads and his belt and whatnot. I don't think it's ever laid out in black and white, but it sounds good in my head. Do you think if they had a viable human baby, just because Rictus is so big and strong and maybe not the smartest, do you think Joe would even let Rictus like handle the baby like for fear that he would kill him like accidentally like a Lenny situation? No, I can't imagine anybody handling the baby. Well, that's true. Not even Joe. I I don't think Joe would care to, you know, hold his child and, and actually care for it. Not at all. Not even once. I guess I imagine it being even sadder, like Rictus is just so invested in this. And then Joe's like, no, <laughs> you can't. He's like, what? Oh, I love those videos of like the big brothers and the big sisters, like sitting on the couch with the pillows all around them. And they got their arms out and they put the little baby in their arms and they're so happy. Like there's a cute one where like the little girl starts to cry because she's so happy to be holding her little baby brother. It's adorable. Oh, nice. I kind of imagine Rictus like that. <laughs> Sitting on <laughs> a couch a surrounded by pillows, <laughs> arms out in front of him. And obviously he's massive. So like he has these massive arms out and then they put this tiny little baby. <laughs> and he would be so happy. He would be so happy. But I imagine that once babies are born, we saw the harem and it was it had a vault door. It was closed off. It was isolated. I imagine there might be a separate one 
for babies. Like a special vault? Like a special nursery vault. Like a Herod would have been plucked from the main harem and brought over and put into the other harem. The nursery harem. Yeah. Possibly. I mean, it would have been nice if she was allowed to stay in her current harem, you know, with the people that she knows and has come to love and care for and vice versa. But I can't imagine that Joe would care about that. No, I don't think he would have. <laughs> and it's questionable if Angharad would even be allowed to care for the child at all. Yeah, she might be put back into the regular harem and the baby would be brought to the milking mothers. I don't think she'd go back to the regular harem. I think she would go to the milking mothers. I think she'd be moved. Yeah, would she get to, the milking to mothers? I guess, quote unquote, graduate into the milking mothers? Or would they go for an Irish twin situation where she'd be put back into the regular rotation of the normal harem to pump out another heir? Mm. I mean, that harem is essentially a baby factory. Yeah. I would guess anybody that, uh, you know, uh, using terms I don't like to use necessarily, but like produces a healthy baby. I can't imagine Joe, like, taking them out of the squad. Yeah. Like, oh, you did it once. Let's do it again. Yeah. I don't think Joe believes in a one and done situation. <laughs> bullet Farmer does, though. He's just got one bullet for yeah. Furiosa. <laughs> one angry shot. Has anyone had any experience with the umbilical cord? Because I have. No. No. Ew. <laughs> it's, yeah. No, I concur. That's a... Uh, yeah. But... uh the uh, the first kid, the nurse offered me these scissors. They did all the clamping, so it was all safe. But they offered me to sc the scissors to do the you know the big. It felt like I had a big like the big scissors for you know like opening the grand lodge or something like that. But <laughs> I, I was like, okay, sure, like you know I should do these experiences, and and obviously my wife was very involved with the whole process, so I'll do something. And uh, I went to go snip it, and uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was like. Slippery coated calamari, where it's like the tough rubbery thing that just <laughs> doesn't want to go the first time. And yeah, so you almost need like this massive hunting knife or whatever the uh, organic mechanic is using to just slice through there. Kink it over in half and then just slink right through it. Yeah. What's really disturbing about the way he does the umbilical cord is the fact that after it's cut, he just kind of swings it around oh, in front gross. of him. Like a prize. Yeah. Like... Does like, he have a wall? Like he's he, going to keep it. You're going to like keep his dried umbilical cord on a shelf somewhere. Now, if he really knew what he was doing, the blood that's in the umbilical cord is like super blood. Yeah. It's the kind of blood that can do anything. So if he was really good at his job, he would harvest that blood and pump it into a war boy that's dying of leukemia. That is a good point. Also, if he were to keep that, unless he has some preservation thing, uh, I know that, that after you cut that off, then the baby has, you know, we all have belly buttons. Mm -hmm. There's a little remnant of that umbilical cord that as the baby grows older in the next few months, the extra flesh will, you know, it, it's gross, but it, it will rot and then fall off and everything. But even if when you keep it clean, because that little bit is like basically rotting, it just, it stinks. So I imagine <laughs> if he keeps any of this stuff around, it just stinks. Like, everybody's walking into Organic Mechanics for dinner time, and they're like, oh, what is that? You have to take care of that. That is gross. <laughs> Do you need to keep your umbilical cord shelf in the dining room? Does yeah, it yeah. need to sit right next to the table? It did occur to me that maybe he had another use for it. 
I did Google uses for umbilical cords. Didn't really find much. Oh, your Amazon recommendations I know. are going to be so I, weird now. As soon as I typed it in and hit enter, I'm like, I should have gone to incognito mode. I'm going to pay for that one. <laughs> Most of the returns were talking about the blood inside the umbilical cord. I don't think there's really anything useful you could do with the cord itself. Mostly because, like Jonathan said, it's going to shrivel up and dry out and be gross well it's essentially a yeah. hollow tube right you just tie yeah. off one end you could use the other one to practice your balloon animals <laughs> maybe that's why he's so excited to have it he does seem pretty excited oh it's also gross that he just flings it around like there's yeah. like, there, like there's no blood or anything on that that just whipping around all of a sudden <sighs> oh gross he doesn't care. Apparently, interiors on post-apocalyptic vehicles are really easy to clean. Well, there's plenty of slobber around to wash everything up with, so <laughs> I think he's good. I am a little tired of talking about the organic mechanic. Would you all like to transition into talking about getting stuck in the mud? I would. Yes. Okay. Why not? So we joined the war rig, and they have gone a little bit further, but they are still having trouble with the mud and i think right around second 48 offers a really good illustration of what's wrong is that all of the drive power for the war rig is coming from the two rear axles on the war rig itself we're not having every axle on that thing pulling and so when you get into the situation where every set of tires has sunken down into the mud and you've only got those two axles spinning you're not going to be able to rock yourself out of that because you're just constantly digging yourself deeper. I'm used to dealing with snow in my part of the country, and digging yourself out of that is pretty good, because you can just dig up the snow, and eventually you'll hit solid ground. That's not the case with mud. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I think we all are with as far as snow experience. So I don't, I don't have, uh, despite having done Princess Brideman, I don't have that much uh, soft quicksand experience. So <laughs> soft mud experience, anyway. We have to ask the guys from uh, NeverEnding Story Minute. Right. The strategy that Max and the wives are going after is they're pulling panels off of the rig and they're putting them underneath the wheels on the tanker. They're trying to get that tanker up and out. So that way, once you free those back wheels, the whole thing can just roll forward because that's just like an anchor back there in the tanker. So the tanker is an anchor is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is just incredibly frustrating watching this watching how hard this is but what they're doing would be my plan of attack i um you know the getting stuck is more in ice instead of deep snow you know i always the first thing i always do is i just take the floor mats out of my car and put them right in front of the tires like that it's essentially what they're doing i mean that's i don't know if they were directed i don't know if furiosa's you know been here before probably not here but in this situation uh, i don't know how long they've been struggling to come up with this idea but given the resources that they have that's absolutely what they should be doing there is a gadget that i saw scrolling through facebook because that's just what i get nowadays and it's basically a big old foam block with a strap around it and you put this block on the outside of your tire and what it does is it turns your normal tire into one of those RC cars from the 90s with the claws that pop out. Oh, and it yeah, gives it yeah. the ability to just paddle its way out of snow and soft mud and things like that. And if they had a couple of those gadgets, they'd probably have, I'm not going to say an easier time, but they might find a 
bit more effectiveness in getting out of that because really that's the problem like the treads on those tires they're great for hard packed surfaces but here in the mud they're just flinging things everywhere and like julia said it's just frustrating to watch <laughs> yeah a rig that big too you're probably not just getting out back to push either although i, I think at some point in this movie uh, furiosa tries to do that but oh yeah <laughs> it seems a little <laughs> silly. desperation she can't help herself yeah <laughs> I do like when uh, they first throw down, I think it's the, the hood of the war rig, uh, that, that Max and the, uh, what's her name, Toast? Yep. And then and then uh, the other one, Dag, is that her name? Yep. Get that right? Oh, good, because I tried to write them down and, and uh, figure all that out. Uh, but when they, they, they first throw that down and start carrying it over, Dag is just like running alongside, like, you know, when a bunch of people are carrying something and you want to help, but there's no room for you or they're already ahead of you and you're just kind of pretending like you're helping. You just put a hand on it. and Yeah, yeah, it's like, uh, uh, I got this one. Don't worry about it. But Don't worry about this funny. corner, guys. I got it. <laughs> yeah. I think she gets a hand on it by the end, but the, <laughs> most of the time she's just running alongside. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see that all of the wives are lending a hand because this is definitely not something that Max and Furiosa could do alone. They're not sitting on the sidelines waiting for things to happen like they've done in other fights because a fight is one thing, but prying a rig out of the mud, that they're comfortable with. Yeah, even Cheeto, who wants to go back, is helping. Yeah. Do you think Cheeto has gotten over the whole he'll take us back, I know he'll take us back thing? No. Really? Well, she's not done trying to go back. Are you talking about at the end in the canyon? I don't know. I've only analyzed minute by minute up to minute 68. So <laughs> okay. I don't know what I'm talking about. All right. Well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Maybe that changed a bit when uh, the, the Splendid... Uh, that's what I keep calling her anyway. The uh, what, what is uh, the Splendid's name? Ang, Angarad? Angharad. Angharad. So after she fell off and now that's all in question, uh, that may have changed for uh, Cheeto. Hmm. And she's like, oh, yeah, we can. I can't go back now. A little His late favorite. for that. Do we think Max feels any responsibility for Angharad slipping off in the first place? Because, you know, as I was watching things leading up to the minutes that we were talking about, you know, she slips off because her foot is covered in blood from that bullet nick that he gave her. That's ultimately why she slips off the rig and goes under the Bigfoot is because, you know, her her the bottom of her foot is slippery from the blood that's still kind of like seeping out of that wound that Max gave her. I think he does feel guilt. I think he has learned to hide his guilt because he feels guilt about every time ever he wasn't able to save somebody. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I agree that he feels guilt in a general sense because he's always trying to save people and he's always failing to save people. Mm -hmm. But Max doesn't see how Angharad slips. He sees that she's there. He sees her start climbing. He does his little thumbs up thing and he turns back to look at the road ahead and he doesn't turn back to look until after she slips and grabs onto the door. Then he spins around to see what's going on. So he never actually sees why she fell. He only sees the result. So I think, yes, he feels guilty because she died technically under his watch. And that's just how he views people. That's mm -hmm. why he's haunted by ghosts. Yeah. He thinks that everybody is his to protect, even if he doesn't necessarily want to protect them. But I don't think he feels a direct responsibility for the death because of the Nick. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think I agree with you, Rick. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a win for me. But yeah, I think he does carry guilt around with him. And that guilt has just increased 
by a certain amount. But that pretty much brings us to the end of today's minute. Come back on Friday because we get to see Furiosa longing for dry ground again. We see the bullet farmer who's come from the bullet farm out there probing the night and we get to see Nux again and he just wants to help. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 68 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.